Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Balaguer Guitars. Founded in 2014, Balaguer Guitars strives to bring modern aesthetics and options to vintage-inspired designs. Go to balaguerguitars.com for more info. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Fishman, inspired performance technology. Fishman is dedicated to helping musicians of all styles achieve the truest sound possible wherever and whenever they plug in. Go to fishman.com for more info. Welcome. Welcome to the URM podcast. Uh, I am Bo Burchell. I'm your guest host for this episode. And I'm going to be answering questions submitted by you guys. We did a Q&A today for the live Nail the Mix event for, what are we in, May right now? It's May 17th. Oh my God. May 17th, and we have the Seosin track uh, the Silver String. We did a Q&A today, and uh, there was just too many questions for us to answer. So, Aol and Joey and Joel were nice enough to let me come on here and hijack an episode and answer a few more questions. So, that's pretty cool. And if you enjoy this, or if you want to hear more questions, uh, if you want to ask more questions to me, you can email Aol, E-Y-A-L, at urm.academy. Uh, with the subject line, Dear Bo. And uh, you can bother him about it. And uh, I would love to come back on. Okay, well, let's just jump right into it. And first question, John Garcia. I noticed you don't have these over-the-top cannon blast toms with a ton of low end. What's your approach to toms, and what do you want out of them in a mix? I'm hoping that's a, a compliment. I, what's funny is usually on my mixes, when I get notes back, a lot of the times it's turned down the toms or the toms are, are too huge. For whatever reason, I love huge, larger than life toms, but I do realize that they get distracting. I'm not really looking, I guess in all of my drums, I'm looking for a, a really, a perfect blend of the right amount of, I guess, I guess, natural versus a little bit of synthetic. You know, if you were to look at, if you were to look at it like almost like a photo, or like a magazine photo. You know, I, I don't want it like the full-on like alternative press, like where it looks like, uh, you know, and not that that magazine's bad. I'm just saying, like everyone knows what that magazine's like cover photos look like. They almost look like cartoony. I'm not looking for that. I'm looking more for kind of like the just like the, a, a nicely photoshopped photo where, where it doesn't look over-the-top photoshopped, if that makes sense. Um, I just want it to feel like it's just a, like the best drum kit I've ever heard, but I don't want to sound phony. That's what I'm looking for. They have to have impact, and it also depends on the fill. If, it, if it's a tom beat where it's kind of like a fast thing, you also have to pay attention to what the toms are doing, what their purpose is. If their purpose is to add impact, like a like a section where it's like a, a big, you know, like a dun 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 bum 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 like a big kind of heavy impact part, then you want those to really carry a lot of impact. But if it's a fast roll over maybe, say, a vocal and a lead guitar part, you probably don't want those to get in the way of those things. Toms, just like any other instrument, I think that you need to address them part by part and on a song-by-song -song basis, too. Colton Hunter... What headphones are you rocking? If you're talking about the Q&A today, I was using the Sennheiser, what is the six, the HD 650s. I really like these a lot. I track with these even though they're open back. But generally when I have people tracking in here, I have them use the, uh, I believe they're called the Blue Mophies. They're the gray set. I know that they came out with a, a newer set recently. But these are the gray set, and they have like a built-in amplifier and kind of like some extra bass settings on them, and they get really tight on your head, and the isolation is great. A lot of people really like, you know, head headphones are important. They're kind of something that people don't really think about. Headphones are important as well as a headphone mix. You guys probably already know this, but like, man, I can't tell you how many times I've had a singer come in, and when we're tracking vocals... They just instantly, and I usually track vocals in the control room, so they'll just stand right next to me and be like, holy shit, this sounds incredible. And, you know, a headphone mix 
is important, you know, and, and I think that making the vocalists sound great as well as the band, it's really inspiring. I mean, no one wants to sing to just like a crappy sounding rough mix. You know, you got to get it a little bit better than that and make it sound a little more finished. And as well as you can actually hear more what you're looking for out of the vocalist when when you have kind of like a more finished and a brighter sounding recording, you can, it's easier for, for me to tell if I'm getting enough top end out of the vocalist or if he's pushing his throat or, uh, you know, the top end, the grit that's in like a male vocalist voice, if, if I'm getting that out of it or not. Whereas if, if it's a darker kind of just kind of crappy rough mix, it's, it's easy to think that your vocal sounds great when you're comparing it to something that's pretty poorly mixed or not mixed at all. I also have a set of the Sony 7506s that are kind of like the old ones from, you know, years ago. They were kind of like the standard, but now they're just really bright and kind of thin. And then I think I have the Bayer... Oh man, they're kind of like, they're the set that everyone has. Anyways, they're the Bayers, except they are the M version, which is instead of the like the, the comfy padding, it has more of like a, like a leather kind of padding around the ears, the ear pad or whatever that's called. Sean Frost. Hey, Bo, my question is about the bass stems you provided for the silver string. Are the DI and amp stems differently recorded performances? When I've been mixing the bass, I swear I'm hearing different rhythms or bass fills in each stem. I also ask because I can see they don't quite line up. Did you pick one and choose between these two? Did you choose to mix one over the other? Cheers. Sean. Yeah, I kind of mentioned this on the Q&A today. This song was the, was the, Silver String was the first song that we mixed for the record. And I find that the first song that you mix on a record is usually the toughest one because you kind of have to, it kind of sets the pace for the record. Or in my case, I normally like to hear the whole record and let the record set the pace for the mix. So when you're doing your first song, you kind of have to, figure out what's going to work for that song, but also figure out something that's going to work for the rest of the record. If you have, say, a metal record or, you know, a metal record that's just, you know, every song is just blast beats and then breakdown. Or if you have a singer-songwriter that's just acoustic guitar and maybe he gets loud every once in a while. Like, those are going to be easy records to mix because there's not too much variation. But... On, on this record, I mean, I'm in the band, so I'm a little uh, partial to it, but I felt like this, this record had a lot more uh, diversity than, than usual. So I felt like there was, you know, there's some songs, like our working title for one of the songs was called Further Seems Forever. And it, it was like, to me, it sounds exactly like Further Seems Forever. So what worked on that song was not going to work for a song, say, like Old Friends, which was a much more like heavier, I think it's in like drop, B or even A or something like that. But, you know, so you kind of have to tailor your mixing for each song. But that being said, I was moving very fast and uh, we were flying in different bass parts, like reamping stuff, uh, trying to make sure the tones were working with each other. And uh, during all that, since it was in the mix phase, I probably, since I wasn't really using the DI, I probably just spaced and totally blew it and didn't put the the right di track in there so yeah if you're hearing something you're probably not on drugs and having audio hallucinations that's probably what happened did i pick between the two yes i did like i said i just i just mixed the 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 cab next question i apologize if i blow your name robin leon is that right robin leon what band, no matter what genre, would be the band that you'd really want to work with? Man, I think I have I have such a broad taste in music that I, f I feel like there's there's probably too many. I think my number one band that always comes back as far as the band that I would definitely want to produce would be In Flames. Even that, like their new record is just awesome. Like the songs are great, but I feel like the mix is just like really lacking like i feel like i would have just smashed that mix and just made it awesome let's see there's a uh, a band called night verses that i really like let's see here um 
I also think that I would I would love to do like a Beck record if he was gonna do like uh I forget what the I forget what the title was. I think it was like morning not morning view, but something. It was kinda like Sea Change, but it was like Sea Change Part Two. But if he were to actually do like a Sea Change Part Two, I would love to do a record like that. I could I could, I would love to do a band like Mercury Program or uh like Shiner. And I love doing like just Actually, a Jimmy World record would be awesome. A Bjork record would be insane. A Nine Inch Nails record would be insane. I mean, like, I just, I think I just like too many things about too many different types of bands to really nail it down to one. But the one that keeps coming up for me, like always, that's always there, would be In Flames. Gio Huete. Hey, Bo, still remember jamming seven years back when I found out about YouTube when I was 12. Ha ha. Could you talk a bit about the way your writing process usually is both in the band perspective and with the way you write music on your own? For example, do you usually come up with riffs and work off those riffs, or do you sometimes work off the drum beats, etc.? I'd love to hear your take on all that. So I I normally have kind of like a a riff or a rhythm inside of my head. It's, it's almost like I hear, like if you were to hear a song and then you start kind of humming that song in your head, you kind of have, even though you're, you're, even though you're only humming, say like, uh, I don't know, wherever I may roam or something, it's like, even though you're only humming that, like you know what the drum beat is and you kind of know everything else surrounding it. And that's kind of how it comes to me a little bit. Like I can, I'll just have a riff pop into my, or a, a melody or a rhythm pop into my head. And then from there, I'm usually just kind of thinking about it. And then as soon as I can discern exactly what I'm hearing in my head, I'm able to kind of document it down. I normally do it with a voice note first because... Sometimes trying to figure out the riff, sometimes trying to learn the riff that's in my head. During that time it takes me to learn the riff, I might forget what I was actually listening or what I was hearing, and then that riff might be changed from that point. So I try not to play the riff until I actually have it kind of documented in my voice notes. Because there's been a lot of times where I, I might be singing something, you know, like a... Like say for silver strings, you know, and if I were to pick pick up a guitar, I may not for whatever chord I might pick up, now all of a sudden I might be in a different key or I might pick up and play the wrong chord, and then that might insp- and something as simple as hearing a guitar chord might inspire me to uh have another idea pop in my head. So like I said, I try not to document it until I get that initial voice note down and then I can kind of play that voice note and then learn what I was humming. Sometimes we do work off of like a programmed thing. If we're trying to kind of get away from a certain type of beat, if we feel like we've been using it a bunch, we might uh, just kind of program something else to kind of get us out of that rut but for the most part, it's kind of both both Chris and I kind of work the same way. We kind of just kind of have these ideas, these like fully flushed out ideas, and then we kind of like pass them back and forth. And then we all tweak something of his, and he'll tweak something of mine, and you know we can make it work from there. Okay, next question, Mike the Rat, are you using a sub? So at the moment, I'm not using a sub. I was using these Quested monitors. They were the V3110s for maybe a year or two years. Um, I really liked them a lot. I have them on consignment right now, but I may decide to bring them back at some point. My room is just not big enough to have them in here. They're a midfield monitor, and they really need to have some distance between my ears and the speakers. And my room is not that big. So now I'm using uh, a company called Barefoot. And I use the MM45. And I've been playing a lot with moving them around in my room. 
And that's something that I would really recommend everyone try. Just, you know, move them around, even if it's only an inch this way or that way, a couple inches this way or that way, you'll be surprised at how big of a difference it makes. If you just take a simple sine wave generator in your DAW and play it, you'll be able to hear, you know, either dips or peaks within your room. And again, that's like a really archaic way of doing it. You can use like a Fuzz Measure Pro or any of these kind of like analyzer programs. You'll take a measurement mic, you'll set it up in your, in your listening position, and you can... Sorry, I'm going way too into uh, acoustics right now. Maybe I'll save that for a different time if you want to get into it. I can get super dorky about it. But to answer your question, no, I'm not using subs yet. I'm still, I'm about 90% sold on where my monitors are at right now. Once these mon once I'm 100% sold, then I will start implementing the subs. I have two subs. I prefer to use my subs in stereo. Some people say they can't hear a difference, like bass isn't localized. But for me, I can definitely hear a difference if I have... A floor tom coming from the right or to the left of me, I can hear that all day long. And it sounds weird to me when, if I have the sub centered, like kind of under the desk, and I hear the attack of the floor tom coming in my, say, my right ear, but the body of the tom is in front of me, that just kind of really throws me off. Next question. Hopefully I get this right. Jake, Jake LaRoche or Jake LaRoche? Jake LaRoche, thanks, sorry. Is that your whole name? Jake LaRoche, thanks, sorry? Question. How did you go about panning the vocals and getting them to fit nicely together? I usually start with my background vocals panned hard left and hard right. I don't always end up there, but that's where I start. I like to get my background vocals wide and kind of more of a, I like to create a pad with the vocals, I guess. I like to have one big layer of vocals, unless it's a, like an answer back thing. And there are lots of those in, on this Along the Shadow record. I like to have, it really depends on the part. For me, a big thing of mixing is making all the parts the most effective they can be, but but not getting in the way of the song or like not letting the production getting in the way of the song. So if you're, if you have, if you've doubled your background vocals and, and you like those to kind of be wide and make the part sound bigger, that's cool. But if it's on a kind of a stripped down part in the song, to me, it's a little distracting especially if you're listening on headphones and you have these huge, wide background vocals just popping in all of a sudden. To me, that's distracting. So I may decide to pan those in a little bit more. Um, and I'll just kind of play with them until I get it to a point where it feels right. Maybe, maybe them being panned in sometimes and then out wider sometimes has to do with it. But a lot of the times, it's, I think all said it today, on the Q&A, a lot of it is if you have your EQ and compression right on most of your instruments, the the width is going to kind of happen naturally, as well as I do feel like arrangement plays a big part in getting things wide and uh, getting things big sounding. When I'm producing records, I, I pay a lot of attention to, I guess, uh, I don't know what to call it, frequency fullness, I guess. You know, how much of the frequency spectrum is this chorus taking up? You know, is there is there a big hole in the mid-range? Like, are you playing like a, a really low, like drop C power chord, and then your your lead guitar part is way up at the 24th fret? You know, that leaves a huge hole in the mid-range. Now, if your vocal is also way up singing a high vocal then we need something to fill that mid-range. We're going to need another guitar part or maybe some extra rhythm guitars that aren't playing the super low part. I pay a lot of attention to filling up the whole spectrum depending on what part of the song it is. I think that's pretty important, and that seems to kind of work for me. Okay, 
next question. Dobromir Vasilev. Hopefully, I, I I apologize. Man, you guys don't know. I I always thought that when they would read these names that they were almost kidding or making up uh, how hard it was. But now when you're on the spot to pronounce something, just like on a cold cold read, it's like, man, this is actually very difficult. <laughs> um, so, Dobermere, question. Did you master the album as well? No, I did not. I have... And now here's another name, that, which is like so embarrassing. Um, I have Mike Kellegian. I... You would think that I would know how to say his name by now. He pretty much masters all of my recordings. He's incredible. He's great to work with. I can, uh, on this on this recent record I just did, I actually sent him a mix that the band was a little bit worried that the overhead sound wasn't the way that they were going to want it to be. So I sent it over to him. He did a test master, master, and then he sent it back. And then we all agreed, like, oh, yeah, we should probably turn those up. So that's great. I would definitely recommend finding a master mastering guy that you like and sticking with him because that is a relationship that is only going to, to help you as a mixer. I do master a few projects every once in a while, but it's usually because it's a much smaller budget and the band just doesn't have the extra budget to have it outsourced. I can do it. I can do it well, like a fine job, but I can't do all of like the, uh, like the DDP files and like the, what are they, the U, URC codes and all, all of that extra stuff. But I can do the actual, uh, I guess I can't do the assembly of the record, but I can do like your typical kind of like, EQ and limiting and making it loud and sound mastered, but I just can't do any of the technical uh, metadata stuff. Okay, next question. Tom Ferrone, question. The printed kick drum tracks for the Silver String are all in stereo. What was the reasoning behind this? Really? Huh. I don't... Are you sure on that? I know the room mic was in stereo. Um, I don't know. Man, that's so crazy, because I usually never print any samples in stereo unless it's an actual stereo track. Maybe I was doing something weird with it. I'm not sure. Although, for my one... Okay, I will say this. Sometimes I will put a track, even though it's mono, I will duplicate it, put it onto a stereo track just to give it a little bit more volume out of it. But maybe I did that for uh, those trigger tracks because every once in a while I will open up a uh, like a trigger plug-in and I'll just instantiate it in a stereo mode if it's not getting me what I need out of the mono mode. But yeah, that's weird. The room, the room sample should have definitely been stereo, but I mean, if you feel like killing those down to mono, go ahead. Next question. Johan Martin. If I remember correctly, you said in the podcast that your drummy drummer doesn't really like to play the kind of intricate stuff required for your music and that he'd prefer to play in more of straightforward music. If this wasn't a joke, how the hell does that work? Well, I mean, it's I mean, I feel like this happens a lot. I've talked to a lot of drummers, you know, they just kind of get tired of showing off all the time and I mean, if you, I don't want to say Alex is the laziest person, but I mean, he puts, I would probably say for being such an amazing drummer, he puts absolutely zero effort into it. Like if he would just put his shoes on, he would be a fantastic, like 10 times better than he already is. He has that much talent. Um, but it's, he, yeah, he would just rather... I think one time for, like when we were doing pre-production or a rehearsal or, or a, maybe we were booking a concert or something, uh, I think, I, I, I want to say, I could be wrong, I could be exaggerating, but like one of his concerns was like, oh, whoa, 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 dude, uh, yeah, man, like whatever, whatever date, you know, like, oh man, July 23rd, oof, I don't know if I can make that. Alex, well, like, why not? Why You have nothing going on, like... You play in a band, you don't have like 
you just play in a band. You have nothing else you could be doing. He's like, ah, dude, uh, I think uh, Florida, like Florida Marlins are, uh, you know, they have have a game going on that day. I can't miss it, you know? Or like he loves, uh, uh, what's his other favorite team? Regardless, I, I mean, I don't really follow sports and I wish I did just for this reason, but... You know, it's like if there's a sports team playing, it's like, ooh, man, I can't can't make it, man. Like, oh, oh dude, Super Bowl? Oh, sorry, not going to be able to make it. Count me out. And the two days prior, we have, like, a lot of Super Bowl stuff going on. Can't, can't do anything. But, yeah, no, he just loves, like, if he could be in the Strokes or, like, the Bravery or any sort of those bands that's just a four-on-the-floor simple thing. Like, for instance, on this record for Along the Shadow, I had to make him set up an extra crash symbol so that there was let's see there was a left crash a right crash a ride a hi-hat and a china if he had it his way he probably would have just had hat crash ride so and i don't i mean i i don't think it's out of laziness but definitely when it comes time to touring you know even though we have a drum tech he's just like he's like man just just like a lot of extra stuff man i don't need all that stuff so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's how it works. He's, uh, somehow he makes it work. And uh, if, I was in, if I was playing drums, I would be one of those guys that had, like, the full-on Tommy Lee, uh, like, cage that flew up over the crowd. And I would have, I mean, like, my kit would make Neil Peart's kit look like a minimalist kit. And I would probably have to have, like, five drum, tra- drum techs. And it would just be this amazing thing. Yeah, that's how that's how it works. Next question, Terry Parmalee. How do you manage family time, recording time, and going on tour, and does it create issues at home with the wife? That's a pretty good one. Fortunately, right now, I don't really have to manage family and touring time, but, you know, I think that if you're thinking about having a family you need to to pick the right person to start one with. They need to be completely understanding that that you're kind of a a crazy person and that that you enjoy going on a bus and being gone and exploring the world and playing music and doing all sorts of weird stuff. And you know, they need to know that going into it. And I think uh, you know, sorry if I'm getting too deep, but you know, you, you need to have those talks with this person before you uh, commit to having a family with them. Because the last thing you want to do is, you know, not disclose any of that information. And then, you know, now you have kids, but you're never around and you're trying to leave and go be in a band. And it's just, it's going to be a bad situation for everyone. I think that where I'm at now, I'm, I'm extremely lucky because, you know, I don't really tour all that much. But when I do tour the like the financial side of it is good enough to where my wife is okay with me being gone you know it's it's definitely not at the point where you know i can be gone for a couple months and you know she said you know it's it's definitely not like full rock star like i'm playing in a in a huge band where i can come home and be like oh that's fine honey like here's a brand new jaguar cool great all is well it's it's definitely not like that at, at not even anywhere near near close to that but at least it's kind of at the point where you know she's not super pissed off because i'm going out and living on a bus and you know like doing cool stuff and and then coming home with no money so you know it's depending on where you are you know it's like it's if you if you go on tour for a month and you bring home a hundred dollars you know, your wife's going to have a little bit different opinion on it rather than if you're gone for a couple months and you bring home like 50,000. So it's, it's going to be, you know, each, each situation is different. And like I said, I think that just having that relationship from the get go is, is way more important, you know? And and I think that goes to, uh, no matter what kind of job you're in, if you're, if you're a workaholic, which I mean, I kind of am. And I think that you know, anyone that's like really passionate about something, you know, probably all you guys too, because you're, you know, sitting here like just soaking in all of these podcasts and, you know, trying to soak up every bit of information you can about something that you're passionate about and you want to be involved with. So, 
you know, like, like right now, I mean, I mean, I don't want to say I'm lucky, but it's kind of nice because it's, I mean, I'm, I'm doing this at nine 30 at night. Um, my kids and wife are already in bed. So I come out here and do this for a little bit longer and then I'll probably go to bed. You know, I might even do another recall after this and then maybe try to learn something on my own and then experiment with some more things and then probably go to bed maybe around midnight or so. And then tomorrow I'll have to get up at six and help with the kids. And then like right now my wife works one day a week, uh, actually one and a half. So today I had the kids in the, in the morning. I have them from nine till uh, noon and then she gets off work at one and then we did the uh, podcast at two and then I did, um, let's see, what did I do today? I did uh, some vocal editing and recalls for uh, this band called Taken that I'm doing their EP right now. Um, I did recalls for three songs for this middle class record that I'm working on and then I worked on the uh the nail the mix session a little bit i'm trying to i'm really trying to make the the nail the mix thing great for everyone so that they can really learn a lot at whatever level they're at and then uh came back in made dinner ate hung out with the kids um put them to bed and then you know hung with the wife for like a hot minute and then came out here and started started working. I think I did another, I had to upload some files for mastering for another project that I did. And then I started doing this. So I think just like anything else, if you're, if you're truly passionate about something, it all comes down to priorities. And again, finding that person that's, that, uh, supports you and your goals and, you know, is, is understanding that like, Hey, you're this person that, needs to do these things in order to feel, you know, in, in order to be the best person you can be. So that would be the biggest thing. Um, as far as work, studio world, I, I normally try to keep a, a, a tight schedule. I normally work from nine to five or 10 to six. I think that I first started doing that when we did after our record with, uh, we did a record with Howard Benson and it was our self-titled record. And he had a tight eight hour schedule. It was a little bit, it was a little bit different. I think it was like 11 to seven or something like that, or maybe it was noon to eight, whatever it was. It was just a, it was like a strict eight hour schedule, except the only difference is, is that like there we had a, you know, an hour long lunch break and a, uh, an hour long dinner break and then a smoothie break and uh, any other kind of break you can imagine was there. But for the most part, we were working and not just horsing around. We were either working or eating. And I kind of implemented that into my workflow to where we get in here at 9 or 10, we work as much as we can, and then we're done. And then I get to go in, hang with the family, and then the band gets to go decompress and be stoked on the work that they did for that day. I think my biggest my biggest problem with that is I end up, you know, generally recording a band, you're working with one person at a time. So it's all it's almost like me against it's like this wrestling match and it's me against a tag team, you know? So it's like they keep tagging guys in. It's like, okay, guitar player, you're up, boom, go, 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 go. I'm you know, and if you've ever been tracking guitars, you're focusing on pitch and timing and attack and playing and, and is the note arcing too much? Is it not arcing enough? We need to play it harder. What effects are we using? How is this how is the top end of this distortion interacting with the symbols? How is how is this part going to you know, fit compared to the scratch vocal that's there. Like, are we keeping the scratch vocal as that main part or are we going to write a new part because this new guitar part is so great? All these things are going through your head. And if you've ever been in like a really high intensity session like that, you're kind of fried at the end of the day. But when you're working straight through like that, it makes it even tougher because, you know, you've got bass player, he's coming in fresh, you know, and then the guitar player is coming in fresh after that. So everyone's coming in fresh and you have to... I mean, I've somehow managed to make it to where I keep feeling fresh at every point, at every changeover, at every tag-in, let's say. And I think that's just because I'm genuinely excited about every instrument uh, that we're tracking. I do a lot of projects, like one song a day, 
And it doesn't work for every band because obviously for the way more technical bands, there's just, there's no way that, I mean, unless the band comes in with all of the parts completely already written and my only job would be to just make sure that the parts are played perfectly, even that, if it was like a, you know, like one of those like Jason Richardson or or like a really technical thing, I, I doubt that there's a way that you could really accomplish that doing one song a day but all that being said every time we switch instruments it's it's like i get this big boost and a recharge and i really feed off of the the person that i'm recording their energy so when they come in and they're now sitting next to me in what i call the hot seat then you know all of a sudden i see them starting to get a little nervous and you know like maybe another guy in the band is in here watching them and it's like the intensity level gets hot you know and everyone's just stoked and ready to just kill it like i've really feed off of that and it's you know and you have to be on point that's the whole i mean that's another reason why i don't drink and i don't smoke i mean well i would say i barely drink i drink maybe like once every couple of months or something but like you know a lot of the times i'll have bands in here and they're like hey man you like want to want to have a drink or want to do this or that you know i'm like no man like you guys are paying me to be quality control like the last thing you need is me getting you know drunk or stoned and then it's like yeah man that was fucking sick let's yeah we're done man like that was so tight and then we get in here the next day and it's like yeah what the hell were we thinking that sucked let's do it again so yeah all that being said I do try to keep a a balance of, hey, when we're out here, we're working, we're getting shit done, and then when we're done, we go home. And, oh, back to the my biggest issue with it is that I find myself, since they're, we're tagging in and doing multiple people at a, at a, you know, all throughout the day, then I find myself never really getting a chance to get up out of my chair until I just, like, absolutely have to take a piss or... You know, it's like, oh shit, it's like three o'clock and I forgot to eat, you know? Normally that doesn't happen because I feel like in the studio everyone's talking about food and whenever I hear someone talk about food, my ears just perk right up because I'm a full-on foodie. Like, I love food. If I didn't have the metabolism that I do, I would be 500 pounds easily because I, if I do get a chance to eat, then I'm just like wolfing down food. Hopefully that answers your question. All right. That was a long one. Don Kendall. I love the blend of this kick. Is there any way you'd be willing to give Cell the samples for this? Um, I don't think it would be right for me to sell the samples. And I don't think it would be right for me to give them away. Well, I guess I could give away or sell the... Uh, there's that sample that says, I think it's the MW Room. It's the Megawatt Room. Um, I actually did find the samples that I made for this session, but the but the BB kick is one that I wouldn't be able to sell. But it's just a one shot. So I mean, if you're if you're savvy enough and you want to, uh, you know, make your own out of it, I don't really see a reason why you couldn't. I really like that sample too. It's a great one. Tyler Rodriguez, question. Are you going to run any of the drums through those badass outboard compressors during the live mix? I think so. Um, I don't know if I... Well, I'm sure that I didn't have my kind of triple parallel... I guess it's more of a quad parallel because I have... I have the Compex, the, the IGS, and the Lindell, and a Clean or like a, just a raw or unprocessed. So I guess it's like a, a quad parallel, or would you call that triple parallel? I don't know. Three compressed, one uncompressed. And then those all go to a drum bus. But yeah, I will be running those through there, even though in the original mix, I'm sure that I did not have that going yet. I probably just had either the IGS, which is kind of like an SSL-style VCA compressor, or the... Uh, the compacts and the compacts is just a beast that thing is awesome zachary moslowski moslowski what are some lesser known artists that i should be listening to new or old that's a really good question um let me see i mean 
I guess it depends on what do you mean by lesser known artists. And I wish we had a way to interact right now. I think that there's this band called Ages, A-E-G-E-S. I'll just give you like a couple different things. Ages, A-E-G-E-S. The record that I mixed is called uh, Weightless. It's a pretty rad record. And uh, Bob Marlette actually produced it and I mixed it, which was really cool. Because actually, uh, I don't know if you heard the, the podcast that, that Bob was on, but they, I think they talk about his kitchen and like the drum sounds in there. So on that record, I really, I mean, I just love those kind of like smashed when I just get to punish. <laughs> I'm laughing because someone else asked about punishing drums. And I call it punishing drums. Um, but anyways, the like I love that kind of big blown out, just like smashed drum room sound. To me, it's just like Led Zeppelin on steroids. I love that sound. And you can really hear on that record, especially just the full like blown out drum sound of, of like that's the stuff that like I love doing that's just super nasty. The Bronx uh, Four is another one of those like really like raw dog, blown out records. I, I actually produced and mixed that record. Middle Class Rut, No Name, No Face. I mixed that record. That's another really cool one, and that's an interesting record too because they didn't have they don't have a bass player, so it's just two guitars, and a drummer, and a lot of it is just, they actually recorded the drums at their. The drummer has a cabin or his parents have a cabin or something, but they recorded the drums themselves at, at this cabin, and the like. The mono room mic is like 90% of the drum sound, but when you have a record that has that kind of space, you can get away with just like a super blown out drum sound that you know, you're not really going for clarity. It's more just all about vibe. I think Mooseblood is a like fantastic band. I love those guys a lot. I produced and mixed that record too. But that's just like great, good old emo, poppy jams for me. Like that's that's my jam right there. Who else is great? There's a record that I really like called The Mercury Program. And they have a record called All the Suits Began to Fall, I think is what it is. That's a really cool kind of like instrumental record that has some pretty unique instrumentation on it. I used to love the drum sounds on that just because if you put it on in headphones and you just listen to it at night, if you're getting sleepy, it just feel it feels like you're in the room with these guys just like jamming around you and it's it's just super cool. Yeah, and I, I really don't know much more lesser known artists. Um but I don't know. Maybe maybe clarify the question and submit another thing and maybe I could do a whole nother thing about it. Elon Benita. Hopefully I pronounced that right. Elon. I feel like I should know this because I feel like we have a lot of interaction on Instagram and Facebook. Do you usually track drums at my place? Yes and no. It depends on the project and it also depends on the budget. If there's a really nice budget, then I would prefer to do drums somewhere else. Mainly because I love experimenting with different room mics and just sometimes you get bored of your own room. My room is really small, actually. Uh, when we do the, the Nail the Mix, maybe we'll do like a studio tour or something like that. But I mean, it's like an 8x9 ISO booth. And when I say ISO booth, that's exactly what I mean. It is just totally dead with the exception of, you know, a few like slat diffusers around the room just to give it some air. But for the most part, it's a very dead room, as is my control room. I, I mean, my control room, I love being very dead. I hate hearing any sort of reflection or like, a, you know, auxiliary noise in a control room, it, like really bugs me. But my ISO booth is very dead. I'll stuff a drum kit in there open up the, the door to the ISO booth, stick a stereo set of room mics kind of above the doorway and then up at the top of the hall and then maybe one around the corner of the door. And it sounds cool. It's, uh, I use it on a lot of records, but it definitely takes a lot more work 
than if you were to just go into a great sounding drum room and pull up the faders and it's like, wow, that sounds great. So yeah, I guess it it depends on the budget and what the intent is. You know, for for like say a band like Mooseblood, the the goal of that record was not all about the drums and making the drums, you know, making sure that every hit was, you know, crystal clear and, you know, articulate and powerful. Even though it ended up turning out great and it's some of my favorite drum sounds, I don't necessarily know that that would work if you were to combine those drums with ultra-heavy, super-saturated guitars. Yeah. Next question. Elon Benita again. Did you buy the compacts to punish drums? <laughs> yes. With a lot of my gear, the settings almost stay the same. I found a spot that I can let them live and then I'll use like input Pro Tools trim or clip gain to determine how hard I'm hitting things. With the Compex, it has this really cool thing that it's got like an input. I don't think it's a preamp, but it's got an input circuit that when you drive it hard, it'll actually distort. So... When you drive things into the compacts nice and hard, it'll actually distort before it compresses. So it's almost like for everyone that's just that's not really familiar with analog gear, if you have like a clipper plug-in, so imagine you're just kind of clipping your drums, whether it be your bus or whatever it is. Imagine you have a clipper followed by like a uh, like an SSL compressor except it's it's more like a uh, 1176 type of thing. I don't know, it's just def- definitely got its, its own sound. And it only has a couple different, you know, attack times. Uh, it's got like 2.5 milliseconds, 25 seconds, and, uh, sorry, 2.5, 0.25, and 25 milliseconds attack time so it's like it's a really fast compressor like as far as attack time but then your uh, your release is uh variable to a pretty 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 good even though i just pretty much leave it where i have it set but yeah it's just cool because you can kind of really tr- you can lop off the transients before you're hitting the compressor and like i said when you blend that underneath or even like on a lot of the middle class rut stuff we just use that as the main drum bus and it just like sounds slamming same thing with on that ages record that i was talking about it's just full blown out just gnarly so yes it is specifically to punish drums mike the rat what's up what are you guys drinking right now just joking well i think you're talking about on the uh q a today and i was drinking a cold brewed coffee, but it looked like A.L. was kind of dipping into the sauce. I can't be sure, though. I can't speak on his behalf, but it looked like he was enjoying himself. But now I'm just drinking water. I'm getting ready to kind of wind down for the evening. Next question, Elon Benita. Oh, you know what? I guess I could go back to uh, Elon's original question. Do you track drums at my place? So... On the Seosan record, Along the Shadow, we track 99% of that at Megawatt, which is the place that we also tracked our self-titled record at. So that whole record was done or that whole record was tracked drums at a at a nice studio. Then for the song Drinking from the Fountain, nobody liked that song. I was kind of the only person that believed in it. And then as we kind of I kind of, like, at the very end, I just had this thing, and I flipped the script on it, and I was like, man, what if we made this song just kind of like a, you know, we don't really have to follow any of the rules that we've been kind of setting for ourselves. Like, we don't have to fall into the whole, like, typical post-hardcore thing. Uh, Like, it's just a whole new, let's just do whatever we feel like is cool. That's what we've been doing on the whole record. Why are we trying to imply those kind of, like guidelines for this song let's just throw those out the window and do what we want so actually another band and to get back to the other question uh what is a band a lesser known band that you should be listening to another band is called mew which is awesome they have a record called fringers and uh and i believe 
Fred Archambault helped do some engineering on that record too. Uh, we were at like a, a URM dinner last time those guys were out here and uh, Fred was there and I brought up that record. I was like, man, the record is insane. He's like, oh, dude, I engineered that. I'm pretty sure. Anyways, Mew, that song. So I turned it into this thing that was like really Mew-ish. And if you listen to Mew, you'll totally get what I'm talking about. Anyways, the song Drinking from the Fountain, we decided not to track drums for it while we were there because we thought we were cutting the song. But then, like I said, I turned it around and turned it into something new. Then uh, I just had Alex go in and I had my kit, which was the same kit that we tracked the record with. I set up the kit and had him go play like a beat that we kind of had in my head. And that song uh, is a little more heavily sampled. But uh, that song was tracked in my drum room and the rest of the record was not. So I hope I did a pretty good job of disguising that. But yeah, there's like a direct comparison of, you know, pretty much same record, but tracked two different spots. Ilan Benita, question. When you track overheads and spot cymbal mics, how do you mic and how do you mix them together? What sounds is supposed to capture each? So for me, a lot of, I find that there's a fine line between, you know, how hard you can push someone to get the performance that you need out of them versus, you know, okay, well, let me just set up millions of safety nets just in case. I like to set up a lot of different safety nets just in case because I do think that I would much rather have my drummer walking away from the experience thinking, you know, like, wow, that was a great experience. I totally played all those parts to the best of my ability. I had a great time doing it. I'm excited about this record. Rather than me really hounding on someone to the point where they're hating me. I mean, I normally hound on people pretty good. I try not to let most things slide, but there is, you do have to kind of read in between the lines on from person to person, whether or not, you know, is this guy going to crumble if I tell him he needs to play it 10 more times to get it right? Or do I, you know, like for instance, say like a ride mic or a hi-hat mic is a perfect example of like what I would call a safety net. Because if you really think about it, those are spot mics. If you really want to get down to the kind of core, I guess, uh, what would you call it? Like a, a core mentality or a core theory about it. You know, if, if you're, if you're anti-spot mics, you're pretty much just going to live with like maybe a stereo set of XY overheads. And if the drummer's not hitting the ride mic, if he's not hitting the ride hard enough in that section of the song, make him play it over because you've just got those stereo XY overheads and he'd better hit it hard if he wants to hear it in the mix. Same thing with the hi-hat. Hey, you're doing like 30-second notes on the hi-hat. It's really not articulating all that well. Too bad. You better tighten up your foot and then get those hi-hats really laying into them, but don't lay too hard so it doesn't get too washy. You know, like, so there's, I guess there's that. And then there's the extreme of, I don't give a shit how he plays it. I have... A top and bottom and close and side and every mic everywhere. So it doesn't matter how hard he plays it. I'm just going to, you know, if he plays the ride soft, I'm just going to transient design it up and then it's going to be just this ting and I can make anything sound fine. So I guess those would be the two extremes. And I try to implement maybe equal amounts of both sides, which, which I feel like is something that I'm kind of, I don't want to say I'm proud of, but I do feel like it's something that I've noticed about myself that that I think is a good quality. I think coming from doing more technical and I don't want to say like metal bands, but but yeah, doing like the technical faster, heavier stuff, you get really good at editing and knowing your limitations on what you can fix versus what you can't fix and and what needs to be played again. So for me, I set up those safety nets just because I, I feel like if, you know, hey, if, if Pro Tools has whatever studio, at my studio, I have 32 inputs. So 
if I'm at my studio, I mean, I don't have 32 mic preamps, but you know, say I, I say I have all 16 mic preamps being, you know, if I'm not using all 16 mic preamps, why, you know, like, or, I mean, I know that you shouldn't just use things just because you have them, but if, you know, if you've got, you know, say the drummer has 10 cymbals, why not mic up every single one of them just in case, you know, say there's a section in the song and it slipped past you because you were working on that part. You know, he's already played that section uh, four times, five times, 10 times maybe, and he just can't get it. And on top of that, he's out of practice and he's got, uh, <laughs> we have this, sorry, we have, we have this joke uh, with our drummer, Alex, and <laughs> he has, he has like a, a really sensitive hands, I guess. And Chris, our bass player, came up with this term that he's coined for Alex's hands. And he's, he says that he has dick skin hands. <laughs> so it's like whenever Alex comes to play, he usually never rehearses and he just shows up. And he shows up with his dick skin hands. And after the first song, his like every part of his hand is just like, it looks like, like Freddy Cougar like face I guess if it would be Freddy Cougar took off his gloves I'm assuming that they would also be like burnt like the rest of his body but it, they just look like he just peeled all of his skin off of his hands so we say he has dick skin hands but anyways you know say you have a drummer that's like that and they show up with their dick skin hands and their hands are just totally shredded from out being out of practice and here you are the producer like sorry man you got to play that thing again otherwise it's not going to be heard it's like well yeah but you got to realize how much you can fix versus how much you're going to destroy this drummer and just make it not a good time for him so that's kind of how i treat the spot mics or that's that's why i have the spot mics it's usually just I guess for that reason, for automation or depending on the track, say if later on in the production you decide that, you know, oh, there has to be some extra guitars or there's this extra part and now this crash cymbal like isn't quite cutting through, it's nice to have that mic that you can kind of automate up for that section. Or if, uh, if you're looking for a, a more tight drum sound uh, and you want those cymbals to be very fast um, and not decaying as long as they are, say, if you've compressed your overheads or if you've compressed your rooms, you can kind of treat things differently with the different sets of microphones also. So say you wanted to like group together or assign all of your spot mics to a stereo bus, you could, you know, potentially treat that as like your overheads B, you know, or your overheads two, if you wanted to maybe ditch your original overheads for a section of the song maybe for impact um the other thing that's cool to do is depending on i found that sometimes depending on the kit how far away you know where your placement of the uh of your overhead mics they might sound best to capture the whole kit or what whatever you're trying to capture but Depending on how far out you had to go with, say, your uh, your ride side, I call them I call them hat overhead, ride overhead, just because it's a little easier for me to know in the end. Depending on like uh, if I had an like a house engineer set up the the mics for me, uh, or like place them, and you know sometimes when you go to another studio, they'll have a house engineer kind of like you might send them an input list beforehand, so you might show up and all the mics are already ran and kind of like placed roundabout in the right way in the room and if you just put you know room left room right they might do it at you know audience perspective um so i find it's easier if i just label it you know overhead hat overhead ride room hat room ride room two hat room two ride hat and ride to me is a, a way more it's a lot less likely to get screwed up as far as what's your left and what's your right but another way you can use spot mics is, you know, like I said, depending on how far out your ride mic has to be, depending on where your, I mean, your overhead ride, depending on where your overhead hat mic is, to balance the snare in the middle, if that's something you're doing, you may decide that, like, wow, I wish my, uh, 
Like, I wish my hi-hat was either more off to the side or more in the middle, depending on the, the section of the song and what's being played. Sometimes I feel like there's a, there's a band that I just tracked, and there was a really cool drum beat where they were kind of going back and forth between the hat and the ride, doing a lot of kind of like... type of stuff. And to me, it sounded really cool having the hat and the ride panned like extremely hard left and hard right. So it was like this back and forth, left and right percussion thing. But then for other sections in the song, when it was the chorus, I wanted the hat to be more kind of like up the middle. So I wasn't hearing just a like a hi-hat in my left ear because that to me, again, back to the kind of frequency spectrum thing, it feels a little bit weird to me when I just have this isolated kind of hi-hat white noise above the guitars just in one ear on my left side or like just a crash on only the right side. That sounds a little weird to my ears, like just a little unnatural. I like to hear my drums a little bit more natural than that. But that's another way that you can use the spot mics is, is either accentuating or pulling those elements closer or farther apart or bringing them more closer to the front of the mix or you know just totally eliminating them and letting it be more natural. Hopefully that answers your question. Like I said, any of this any of the stuff you want me to elaborate on, I am more than willing to come back. I really am having a awesome time interacting with everyone. Hopefully there's a lot more stuff I can do in the future. Okay, McKinney Bots. Last question. Hey Bo, can you talk a little bit about your mastering experience with Mike Kellegian? Again, Mike, sorry if I'm saying your name wrong. Uh, you'll have to like send me a voice note that says how it is. I'm the worst with this stuff. I'm just the absolute worst. Anyways, like there's people that I've known for like years and years and years. And then sometimes I still am like, oh, hey, like, dude, what's up, man? Like, yeah, I had a great time at your wedding. You know, and it's just like, man, how how am I spacing on their name right now? But anyways, a little about my mastering experience with Mike. I mentioned it before. I mean, he's just awesome. I've dealt with a lot of different mastering guys. Mike, by far to me, is... I don't know if it's just because he, like, used to produce records. And he... Yeah, I guess I could relate it to myself a little bit, you know? I find that uh, one of the qualities that I like about myself or that people like about me is the fact that I am in a band and I've been in the position of a band making a record. So I try to treat the band as, you know, with the respect that, you know, they either have earned or deserve or maybe haven't earned. But I try to I try to treat them and make the experience as best as possible and, you know, Obviously, the record comes first, and and the songs and the production has to be my number one priority. But I do try to really make it a point for, you know, even if, you know, let's just say Little Stevie has this idea that he is, you know, like, oh man, I really think that a, you know, a saxophone would sound great on this part. And in my head, I already know, you know, like what that's going to sound like because, you know, the past four bands have tried to do the same thing. You know, I, I do feel that it's important for for me to let little Stevie, like, bring in his sax and we mic it up, you know, assuming we have time. But still, most of the time, I'm working so efficiently that uh, we do have time for those things. So I do think it's important to just not tell Stevie, like, you know, dude, shut up, man. Like, that's a terrible idea. Because half the time... Little Stevie comes in and he plays this, you know, riff on the saxophone. And then next thing you know, Jimmy, the guitar player, is saying like, yo, the saxophone sucks, but that riff is awesome. Let me play it on guitar. But now let me add this, you know, dotted eighth delay on it. And now all of a sudden it's like that's the main riff of the song that we've just created. And without me, you know, I don't want to say humoring, but without me giving Little Stevie the chance to to voice his idea that never would have happened. So all all that being said, I do feel like because Mike used to produce records and he knows what it's like to be, you know, a producer, mixer, engineer, I think that translates into his mastering and uh, he's able to understand 
uh, things that are, you know, like, hey, man, like, this is a, uh, this is, like, a more blown-out mix, like, say, like that, uh, like the ages record, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, like this is a, this is a blown out mix. Like let's, uh, let's kind of keep it where it's at. I'm not like, it's supposed to be dirty. Everything's supposed to be sounding like everyone's trying to fight for the spotlight, you know, and he gets that. He's like, okay, cool. I know exactly what you're talking about. I've had other mass engineering engineers in the past, you know, I'll send a mix over that's kind of like that. And it's, you know, it's like, yeah, I don't, you know, sorry, the master is what it is. I can't really do much because uh, there's so much, you know, kind of just mud and nothing's really that clear in this song, you know, or in the mix you gave me. It's like, well, yeah, that's the whole point. Like, that's what the mix is. That's what the band was going for. That's what we intentionally did for this. And the fact that you tried to clean it up just shows that you don't understand what we're doing and you were probably the wrong guy for the gig. But Mike uh, has mastered a ton of records for me. I pretty much use them exclusively now, unless it's like a thing where the band has someone that's like, oh yeah, like, you know, like we want to use our buddy, this guy to like master a record. And even then, you know, there's been a couple occasions where, you know, I've maybe fought with the band or at least said like, all right, cool. Well, Let's at least have Mike maybe do a test master and then we can kind of compare because, you know, not saying your dude sucks, but Mike's really good, so I'd like to use him. That's been my experience with him. He's been awesome. And I believe that's the last question. Thanks for uh, sitting and listening to me yap all night. And uh, like I said, if you want to have me on here doing this type of thing again, just email Aal, E-Y-A-L, at urm.academy. And in the subject line, just put Dear Bo and uh, ask me anything. I love talking about this stuff. And uh, see you guys later. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Balaguer Guitars. Founded in 2014, Balaguer Guitars strives to bring modern aesthetics and options to vintage-inspired designs. Go to balaguerguitars.com for more info. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Fishman, inspired performance technology. Fishman is dedicated to helping musicians of all styles achieve the truest sound possible wherever and whenever they plug in. Go to Fishman.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit NailTheMix.com slash podcast and subscribe today.